this week, like I've mentioned earlier, we're I'm the questions revolved around death and hell. And yeah, woo, get fired up about that. Death and hell, probably two subjects that we least want to talk about. However, it's all throughout the Bible. We are not given the liberty to, uh, like Thomas Jefferson, just go through the Bible, pick out what we want, throw away what we don't, and keep what we do. We take the entire canon of the Bible. That's, that's the all 66 books uh, from Genesis to Revelation. We take it all, and we say, Lord, where we don't understand, change us. Where we are challenged, help us to rise to that challenge. Where we disagree, show us where you are right. Because we have to work with this assumption that, that if God is big and great and good and loving and kind and all-knowing, that he knows more than we do. But that also he doesn't just expect us to simply go around without ever being answered, that he's a good loving father. And when a good loving father uh, loves his children and they come to him with questions, that he's going to answer and so going through the Bible, you're going to come across death and hell. Death and hell. So some of you, just at the mention of those two words, you're going to check out. So here's what I did. As I preach about hell, you got a puppy and a kitten. Maybe you can't see it so well, but that's okay. Just whenever you start freaking out a little bit because we're talking about death and hell, just look at this cute little puppy, looking at the cute little kitten and how they love each other and go on adventures and everything. Um, that's a joke, obviously. But here's the thing. We can't simply avoid this because it makes us feel uncomfortable. We have to tackle this issue of death and hell. What does it mean? Here are the two specific questions that were asked in regards to hell. The first is, when we pass from this world to the next, do we remember the moment of death? And I can't answer that experientially. I'll have to answer that biblically. Number two, have people already gone to hell? Now, my understanding of Revelation leads me to believe that when Jesus comes back, people who have not yet accepted Jesus will have another chance, one final chance. Also, if they are not yet in hell uh, and are not in heaven, where are they? Very good questions. Um, death and hell, as, as unpleasant as they are, they bring up questions. People, when I, when I preach funerals or when somebody dies in their family, they ask me these types of questions. I've gone to um, funerals, unfortunately, where I was not officiating, but I was there as, a, as someone who was mourning with the congregation or as, as a pastor. And I've heard the ministers stand up in front and lie about these folks, lie about them knowing where they are based on their good works. And by lying, I most mean that they're, they're, the way that they are preaching about this person's life is not that this person was not a good or a bad person, but that this person, simply for being good, now is with the Lord. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible teaches us that there is indeed a hell, that everybody dies, and that, that there, it's a place to be avoided. It's a place that's escapable, and that death is not the end, but only the beginning. And so when we have a right understanding of death and hell, hopefully the fear of death and hell goes away. I know a lot of folks, they just, they're just afraid of death. They're, af they're afraid of hell. They're, they live in fear that, that something or someone is going to do something that causes their demise. And so some folks will just spend you know, exorbitant amounts of money to protect themselves from that. Um. But if we stop fooling ourselves, we'll realize that, that death happens to everybody. It's not the most pleasant of things, but we know that it indeed happens to everybody. It never comes at the right time. It's never, uh, we never get to a place where it's okay. Because in its essence, death is, is unnatural. We weren't created for death. Think about that for a moment. When, when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them for death. He created them for life. And death came in through sin. Adam and Eve died as a result of their sin. And so, so even today, if you read the book of Romans chapter 8, I believe, maybe chapter 7, uh, Paul says that even creation cries out yearning for eternal life. That, that, that the animals, that, that the earth itself knows that something's wrong. Death and hell, 
they're unpleasant, but we got we got to go through it. We got to preach about it. So let me give you four warnings. I like to warn you because when we talk about certain things in the Bible, some of us go into a default mode. The things that we've always assumed or the things that we were taught, and um, it's not that they're um, that we're wrong in doing that, but sometimes they blind us from the truth. Oh, I know that already. I've learned that. I was told that. My grandma, my grandpa, my mom, my dad, somebody somewhere told me something about that. I already know. I want to just lay out some warnings to sort of sort of prepare you for the rest of the message. So, so warning number one is this. First of all, don't check out. Don't allow the enemy to scare you into avoiding this message. Don't say, no, I, I don't believe in hell. I don't, I don't like to talk about death. I don't blame you. Talking about death is not fun. Um, but for an hour this morning, let's just, let's, just, let's just see what the Bible says. Don't check out. Don't daydream. Don't, don't go somewhere else. Don't think about the puppy and the kitten. Just be here for this time. And, and, and feel and understand and hear from the Lord what he has to say about this. There are lots of things in our faith that we just don't want to talk about, but they carry so much weight, we can't afford to avoid them. So just brace yourself, get ready, strap up your boots, be prepared. Death and hell, like all things of the Spirit, this is warning number two, is incredibly complex. Some people think, well, there's heaven and hell, and they're just polar opposites, and that's it. When you begin to research hell and the Bible, um, you start to understand that hell is, is as complex as almost anything else that we find in the Bible. That we simply can't boil it down to good and bad, heaven and hell, God and Satan, that it's so much more than that. Things of the Spirit are incredibly complex. There are aspects to this simply because we are finite human beings, that we have limitations that we're going to struggle with. And that's where our faith is going to have to kick in, and, and we're going to have to allow the Lord to show us uh, in, in, a, in a larger chunk of time rather than just this short amount of time that we have today. Number four, one of the biggest problems we'll have with time, or with hell rather, is time. We as human beings, we run by a clock. You know, we, we wake up in the morning, we go to bed at night, our bodies work on, on a clock where our calendars work by time and the revolutions of the sun. We work under time, but God is outside of time. The Lord is eternal and timeless. There are truths that the Bible tell us, and it seems as though something's happening right now. And from a timeless God, they may be. But for us, we have yet to uh, experience them. So for God to, to prophesy in Genesis uh, chapter 3 that a seed would come from the woman to crush the head of the serpent, that the serpent would bruise his heel, but, but that the son would crush the serpent's head, he's not preaching only that this is something to come, but it's something that is established and will happen. In God's framework of time, there is no time limits or time frames. And so... That concept in and of itself is really hard for us to get our minds around. This idea of the absence of time because we measure everything by time. The only way I liken it is to um, – the, the best way I can do this, and it's probably faulty, but I'll share it with you anyways. If you've ever gone to a sporting event, football, uh, football basketball, something with a, a, a timed periods, the football players or the basketball players, they all work underneath the limitations of those time frames. But you in the stands, you're not limited by them. You can come and go as you please. It doesn't matter if you shoot uh, the basketball within that 24-second time frame. You're outside of that. They are not. In, in that analogy, God is outside of the time limits that we might have. And this is why we become so impatient, and God seems to be the king of patience. That's why he's not rushing to make things uh, get done because he's not bound by time like we are. And so there's some, some aspects of timelessness that we're going to struggle with, at least I do, struggle with grasping. And that's okay. Lastly, and I, see this, I feel like this is the most important one. Maybe it's not, but we can't look to the traditions of men and allow that to supersede the word of God. Some of us have ideas about death, hell, afterlife 
heaven and being with Jesus and all that, that is based on a tradition rather than what the Bible says. So in some religions that will tell you that you're saved because you did this, this, and this, you did these good works, you gave so much money, and so God certainly approves of you. That might be their tradition, their long-held traditions, but it's anti-biblical. Bible says we're saved by grace. It's a gift given by God through his mercy. And that gift comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the truth, and our tradition should follow those truths. But today, if, if, if what I preach to you, if it clashes with your tradition, go back to the word of God. Go back to the Bible and see which one actually is the truth. Is it the tradition or what the Bible says? Some of you maybe have come from a Catholic background. We're not even going to talk about purgatory. And that's going to freak you out. But what about purgatory? Well, the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory, so we don't spend a lot of time preaching on purgatory. That being said, those four warnings. First, we're going to look at death. That's fun, right? Hebrews 9 and 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, for every man to die. We cannot escape death. Jesus died, but he rose again. He, he, he lives today conquering death. The rest of us, though, we're going to die a physical death at some point. For some of us, that scares us. I'm Personally, I'm not that scared of it. I don't live in a lot of threat uh, of death, so maybe that's part of it. But I understand where I'm going. I understand who's in control, and if today should be that day, I mean, I really want to see the 49ers play the Giants with my son later, but if today should be the day, I pray that God would just know what he's doing and take care of my family and all that. I'm not really afraid of dying. The question is, will we remember the moment of death? Some folks will tell you, oh, yes, certainly. Some will tell you, no, absolutely not. You're completely changed, and that takes all your emotions and everything else. One last warning. I forgot to write this one down. There are some people, books, movies, where they claim to have gone to heaven or hell. I'm not here to tell you that they have or have not. I am here to tell you, though, back up everything they say with the word of God. Paul says that when he died, he he was caught up to the third heaven, he says. He saw things, uh, it was unlawful for him to even speak. When John, he's caught up in this vision, that's the whole book of Revelation. He saw amazing, spectacular things, things that he struggled to describe. And like I said, I'm not saying these people are lying or not lying, but if you can't verify what they've said by the word of God, tread lightly. Have healthy skepticism. Don't be afraid simply because they have a story. If you cannot verify their story, you're not asked to follow their story by faith. You're asked to follow Jesus by faith. So just be careful. Not everybody's lying, but not everybody's telling the truth either. Just be careful. Going back to death. Will we remember our moment of death? For some of us, that's scary because we don't know how we're going to die. A lot of this has to do simply with the fact that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the future, so we have all these questions about things we simply cannot answer. Will we remember that moment where we die? I don't know. And I'll tell you honestly, as I've read the Bible and studied this week, I don't have a definitive answer, yes or no, about the moment of death. But I will share with you this. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 6. If you've never read the book of Revelation, uh, it's a fun read. Fire and ice from the sky, crushing people, bowls and vials poured out, and wrath of God, and blood up to a horse's bridle, and it's a fun read. But the book of Revelation is this, this prophetic book, not only prophetic, but primarily prophetic of times to come. And depending on how you were raised or what church you were brought up in really determines how you view the book of Revelation. If you come from a a, a Pentecostal background or a charismatic church background, there's a lot of emphasis on things like the rapture and end times and tribulation. 
if you're from uh, a reformed style church or a reformed tradition, some some of them just avoid the book because it's so scary and has so many unanswered questions. There are things that John saw 2,000 years ago that we still can't even fathom. And so um, it, it's it's just an amazing book. In chapter 6, though, there's this, there's this process happening where John sees in heaven these scrolls. And, and we don't mail letters like this anymore, but a scroll was a rolled up piece of paper, and you would have a wax seal on it with, with a, a signet ring imprint or a stamp on it. That would verify that, that no one had tampered with this letter, that nobody who shouldn't have seen this letter uh, did not see the letter. The wax seal was proof that it was still intact as the sender had sent it. There are these seven scrolls, and, and God is opening up these scrolls. As he opens one, another judgment is poured out upon the earth during this time of tribulation. And in chapter 6, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, this is John, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. These souls that are under this altar, already the imagery is blowing our minds, but here, those that are there, they understand the reason for their death. They know why they're there. They died because of their testimony. They told people about Jesus unwavering. They didn't have all the answers. They weren't perfect people, but they held to the testimony of Jesus, and that cost them their lives. Church, while this is a, a prophecy of time to come, realize that right now in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran, this is happening. People being burned alive, people being beheaded for their faith. It's not that times have gotten worse. Literally, times are the same. The, the 11 of the 12 original apostles all died a martyr's death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. In the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 11 and 12, it says that, that people were sawn in two and set on fire and, and just suffered tremendously for their testimony. There's a martyr account of a young girl. She's caught in a home church. I, I forget which region of the world this is in, but she's in a home church where they have one Bible, and the small group of people is, is found. And, and with, with guns drawn, the, the, the law enforcement comes in and, and forces all of the adults to renounce Christ and spit upon the only Bible that they have. Everyone does it. All the people do that. Until a little girl comes by, about 11 years old. She takes her hair and she begins to wipe the spit from the Bible. And then they shot her in the back of the head. Because she would not renounce. And I don't say that to scare you. I don't want you to be afraid. But I want you to understand that in our country, we sit in relative peace by the grace of God. That if we were born on the other side of this planet, our life for living for Jesus would be completely different. Challenge yourself. Would I still have the faith I have if I was there? I don't know. I hope that I would, but man, to see your children killed because you love Jesus, to trust that even if this goes down this way, that it ends up better for me. In the end, Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is gain because to live for Christ here is to work and to serve him, but to die is to go to be with him. That the suffering of this earth will be done. Will we know our moment of death? I don't know. Everybody will. But I know that these people did. And they remember why. Jesus. They gave their life for the testimony about Jesus. For me, whether it's the, the apostles of 2,000 years ago, the Christians that are now suffering, those that will suffer in the future, to me there are few, t few evidences greater of the truth of Jesus than this. 
I simply have to believe that if the, the original apostles were lying about Christ, that when it came time to be crucified upside down, to be beheaded and sawn in two and, and, and fed to lions and, and, and set on fire, to have their property repossessed and taken, to be enslaved and sold as slaves, that at some point they say, you know what? We made this up. This went, this got way out of hand. So sorry that we, hail Caesar. No, we're, we, we repent of that. They didn't. They held to their testimony. Men like Peter and Paul, they couldn't shake what they had seen. They couldn't forsake what they knew. And so for them, they go and they become a martyr, which is a fancy way of saying dying for Christ. And, and, and don't get any grandiose ideas. There are some who will say, well, I would die for Christ. Well, if you'll die for Christ, you should live for Christ first. That's my motto. If you, if you think dying for Christ is really great, then live for him. Live for Christ first. If you're not living for Christ, dying for Christ isn't going to be that easy. Remember I mentioned the timeless aspect? There are things about our faith that we simply, we just struggle with. That we just, we just, we don't know how to get our minds around this. I believe that death and hell is much like that. That even if God were to come out and say, you know what, this is what's going to happen. You're going to live. You're going to die. When you die, you're going to remember how you died. And if he laid out every specific detail, we'd still just sit back like a five-year-old kid and say, but why? 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 We don't understand. You've said everything, but we don't understand. Because our minds are finite. They're limited. God is not. He's infinite and limitless. Will we remember our moment of death? Possibly. I, I tend to believe yes. I lean more that way than, than a no, based on the book of Revelation. Which leads us to hell. We're going to make hell cake. Nobody's ever put hell and cake together unless you knew a bad baker. But let me describe cake to you for a moment. Cake, in its most basic form, is all made from the same stuff. Flour, water, eggs. I wrote it down. Uh, butter, vanilla, uh, milk if you don't use the water. But, but all these basic ingredients are found in almost every cake. Not all, but almost every cake. Together, beautiful. Cake is a beautiful thing. But nobody's ever lifted up flour and said, Mmm, cake. Future cake. Like This is going to be cake someday. It's so delicious. No, this is flour. It makes the cake, but it's not cake itself. Ooh, butter. Well, we might do that with butter. But you know, each individual element is not celebrated until they come together and give us cake. We don't go buy eggs and say this is cake. We don't go and buy salt and say this is cake. We know that these are all going to come together to give us cake. Some of us see hell as, well, there's heaven and there's hell. There's the good place and the bad place. Heaven good, hell bad. Fire and burning and hurting and all that. And, 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 and it's as black and white as that. But when you read the Bible and you start to research hell and what it is and, 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 and how it pertains to the Christian, it's as complex as trying to say, oh, flour is cake. To say that hell is hot is just one element or one facet of hell. To say that, oh, these eggs, they are cake. No, they come together. The ideas of the Bible about hell, they come together, together to give us a picture of what hell is really like. And it's not pretty. So here are some basics about hell. Hell is first, it's an, we can differ on some of the lesser uh, aspects of it. For instance, there are some who, who would say, and I, and I disagree with them, that it's literally in the ground somewhere. I just disagree. Um, I, but I believe that we can still be Christian brothers in Christ if we disagree on that thing. But there are some who say, well, no, there is no hell. How could a loving God even send somebody to hell? Well, the very act of mercy doesn't take place if there is no hell. What is he being merciful for if there is no hell, right? 
So when it comes to the idea of hell actually existing, well, we can't be divided on that. We must uh, accept, like the crucifixion, the blood of Christ and its atonement, uh, Jesus being the only way, uh, Jesus being God. These are things that we cannot dispute. We might disagree on the secondary issues of it, but we must come together and be united on the, the first and primary truths of them. They are what make us Christians. They are what makes our faith what it is. Here are some basics about hell, and I, I wanted to keep this as general as possible so that we don't get bogged down in studying hell. Because let's be honest, studying hell, we should be more we should have more emphasis on Jesus, right? Like studying hell is is just it's like studying a car wreck. Like, why don't you just enjoy driving rather than studying a car wreck, right? Number one, what is hell? It's a place of eternal, that means forever, painful, meaning not good, torment and separation from God. Jesus refers to it and says things like, it's the place where the worm dieth not. It's where uh, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you read the book of Revelation, the doors of heaven are shut. Outside there is darkness. This place is not a place to be desired. That hell, in its essence, is complete and utter separation from God. See, now we've been, if you're a Christian, you've been reconciled to God, but there's still, there's still a physical separation. You know, we're not physically uh, standing next to a physical Jesus right this second. Not yet, but not right now. Um, but when it comes to hell, it's an eternal separation. There's no more hope of reconciliation. There's no more hope that someday someone will come and rescue us because your fate has been sealed. It's eternal, it's painful, and it's bad. Where is hell? This is why some people think it's in the earth because when the Bible talks about hell, it talks about being down. Talks about heaven being up. We know that heaven's not in the sky, at least not that we can visibly see, and it's not in the earth that we can visibly see hell. But here's what I will tell you: hell is down. It's below where we're at. It's below humans. Let's put it that way. Maybe not physically or geographically, but between physical and spiritual, it's below. In the same way that heaven is up. Heaven's not literally in the clouds, as some of us may have learned, but it is above this plane that we exist on. It's far better. It transcends uh, what we experience, and in the same way, hell, but on the other end of the spectrum. So it is down because it's not here. Why is there a hell? Because sin. The original sin of humans is found in the garden, but Satan sinned against God way before man ever sinned against God. The Bible says that Lucifer was a worship leader. He was a music director for God. The, the very movement of his body caused music. It was beautiful. And he became very prideful. Sin was found in him. Iniquity was found in him. And he rebelled against God. It says that he looked to God and said, I want to be like the Most High God. Anybody here play poker? Probably not going to admit that in church. But anybody here play poker? You realize that I don't, I don't play. But here's my understanding. Um, there are things called tells where when you're playing, because it's all, not so much about the hand you're playing, but how you play it. And so when you look at people, and you see something in them that tells you their hand. You might not know specifically, but you know whether they have something strong and good or something weak and they're just bluffing. So maybe a little bit of sweat on the forehead. Maybe start tapping the fingers. Maybe start shaking the knee a little bit under the table. You'll see guys on – I can't think of anything more boring than watching poker on television. But you've, if you've ever seen that at like 12 o'clock in the morning because you can't sleep, you see these guys, they're wearing hats, they've got their hood up, they look like a Unabomber playing poker because they're trying to hide everything so that, so that their tells aren't there, so that they can fool the other players. In, in this story of Satan and his fall, I see a great tell. Satan didn't say, I want to be higher than God. He didn't say, I want to be greater than God. He wanted to say, or he said, I want to be like the Most High. Here's why. Because he and his created mind cannot fathom something greater than God. He is a created being, not like we are, but like we are. 
and cannot think of something bigger, greater, more infinite than God himself. And so he is limited. He can't say, I want to be greater than God. He doesn't know what that is. Truthfully, there is nothing greater than God. So in his finiteness, I want to be like the most high God. And so iniquity is found in him. God judges him. Somehow, now I don't know. Some of you would say, Christianity, why doesn't everybody want you know, Jesus? Here's what I know. Satan was somehow able to fool a third of the, of the angels in heaven um, who were in the presence of God continuously to worship him instead. And God cast them all out. This would be the sin of, of the angels or the sin of the, that then eventually become demons. Hell exists because of sin. If there was no sin, there'd be no need for hell. Who is in hell? Here's where we get to our time issue. Some will say nobody, not yet. Some would say, yes, there is. And I say, yes. Here's what I mean. It's both. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that there will come a time called the great white throne judgment. It's this time where, where God separates, uh, he speaks metaphorically, uh, the sheep and the goats. If you're a sheep, you're in the good line. If you're a goat, it's not going to be a good day for you. Standing before the white throne judgment, not going to be so fun. Sheep, good. And it's actually reversed. The, the sheep are on the right-hand side, the goats are on the left-hand side. And he's going to weigh their works, he's going to weigh their lives, and the sheep pass and the goats go. I go to, to hell. By that, I would say, no. That great white throne judgment hasn't happened yet, so no, nobody's in hell. However, in the timelessness of God and his eternal mindset where he's not bound by tomorrow and yesterday and today, could be. I always liken to this, and this is a, a, a bad metaphor. All of my metaphors are bad. I should just... Be, there should be a placard sum up somewhere. Like, Tony had uses metaphors and parables, but they're not that great. Keep looking at Jesus. Like, just put that somewhere. When I was a kid, uh, I used to love, and I still do, love car, long car rides. Um, when I was a kid, the farthest we'd ever go was places, like, we were on the coast of California. We'd go to Los Angeles. It was about a three-hour car ride. Um, back in the day before kids having to stay in car seats till they were 16, um, you could just sit in the back and play around and run around. Like the back seat was a playground for you, right? Well, I, I would get bored. You know, five, ten minutes in before iPads and, you know, didn't have a, even a Walkman yet. I mean, I just didn't have anything to do. Um, sitting in the back all by myself, I'd just take a nap. And the coolest thing would happen, I'd fall asleep and almost instantly it felt like I, I dropped my eyes and then I woke up and there we were. We were there. A, a second ago, I was in another part of the state. I, just a few, it seems like a brief moment. I was in Santa Maria, California, and now I am three hours south in Los Angeles, California. Blink of an eye. Now, my parents would tell you, no, it was a three-hour car ride, an hour of that spent on the 405 alone. It's, that joke never works here because you guys don't know about the 405. But... People listening online, they'll say, oh, 405, that's atrocious. Um, they know all of the journey. They know everything that happened, the stopping for gas, the, the, the redirecting and asking for directions and finding out just how to get to where they're going and making phone calls. And all. I'm just sleeping in the back. I don't know what's happening. For me, it was instantaneous. For the Lord, it, it might be an instantaneous thing. Bible says our life is like a vapor. You ever seen a vapor? You go outside right now and just breathe. It's just like, oh, it's gone. Brief. Some of us would say, wow, life takes a long time. Like it's getting faster, but you know, time takes forever, especially when you're waiting for something. And the Bible says our life is like a vapor. How's it like a vapor? Well, for God, it's both. Second Peter, Peter says that before God, time is crazy. He doesn't put it like that because, you know, he's Peter. He's an apostle for crying out loud. But he says this. I lost it. 
I didn't. It's just in here somewhere. I know where it is. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And Peter's not speaking in haiku, and he's not trying to sound all mysterious. He's trying to relate to us the timeless nature of God. That a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. You should come away with that, not with an, act, an actual calculation of time. You should walk away from that saying, wow, God and time are different than me and time. But what about hell? When does somebody go to hell? I'll tell you this. Someone goes to hell not because God is bad. God is unloving. God is not kind or merciful. Hell, the good news about hell is that hell is completely escapable. Men, let me ask you a question. There's some of you. How many of you fear the pain of childbirth? We don't, right? Even in, even in the days where your wives may have had children, that was something not made for you, right? There, there, now, for you ladies, went through it. God bless you. Mothers are awesome. But a man is not made for the pain of childbirth. And so we don't fear it. Now, we, we empathize with our wives. We, 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 we um, nurture them and love them and try to make things easier. But that actual pain's not for us. For the Christian today, the pain and the torment and the fear of hell is not for us. It's not for you. If you are a Christian, you don't have to worry about hell. Multiple preachers say it like this. I, there's not any one preacher I can give credit to, but I certainly didn't make this up myself. But the idea is this, is that if you're a Christian, if you have put faith in Jesus and what he has done, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. That everything from here gets better in a sense. That, that we go to be with the Lord when we die. There is no fear. There is no condemnation. We're just reunited with Jesus and we live in eternity in his presence. But if you're not a Christian, this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. This is as close to Jesus as you'll ever get. And for those who, who do not place their faith in Christ, hell awaits. Now, the Bible uses four different words in the Greek and the Hebrew to describe hell or to, to reference hell. This whole blanket hell word is insufficient. Like most Bible words, it takes more than one to describe the actual concept that the Bible's talking about. So I want to go over them to sort of give you a more three-dimensional idea of what hell is like or what hell is. The first word is sheol. You find that a lot in the Old Testament. And some translations will always use the word hell, and some will say uh, sheol, some will say hell, with sheol in the margin or at the bottom in the footnotes. But the idea of this, when the, when the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, when they're speaking of sheol, they're not necessarily talking about hell. They're talking about the place of the dead. It's the opposite of the place of the people who are alive. The idea of Sheol, it's a, it's a place that means to ask or to demand. It means that in that place, there's still this great desire for something more. If you read the account of the rich man and Lazarus in the, in the book of Luke, I, I was going to do a great expository sermon on this whole thing, but it was too much. But I'll tell you this. When Jesus gives this account, some people say it's a parable. Others will argue that, well, Jesus uses real names. Luke doesn't identify it as a parable. They believe that he's actually giving an account of what happens when somebody dies. Uh, it says that Sheol is this place uh, uh, where there is paradise and there is, there is this place of torment. And in the account, the rich man uh, he goes to the place of torment, and Lazarus goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. It's this place of favor. It's this place of rest and blessing. But that's the word sheol, and sheol in and of itself is worth a Bible study and a sermon for itself. But it's not necessarily just hell as we maybe have seen it with fire, brimstone, pitchforks, and Satan and demons. That's not the idea behind sheol. 
when New Testament writers are quoting about Sheol, they're referring to that same place, and they understood it in a way that maybe we don't experience or know it experientially. The Greek word that's equivalent to Sheol is Hades. If you've ever studied Greek mythology, you understand Hades is a place of death, as a place uh, for the undead to be. It's a place that's a prison with gates and locks. It, it, it's, it's downward. I, I literally don't think it's in the earth, but it's down. And the righteous and the, sep- and the wicked are separated there. The third and probably the most controversial, meaning we just don't understand why it's even there, is this place called Tartarus. Uh, the book of Jude, which is just one chapter in the New Testament. Um, Jude uses that word Tartarus. It's a place of, of, of not necessarily humans who are suffering, but, but spirits who suffer, the demonic who have been imprisoned. Last is Gehenna. This is the one that Jesus uses the most often, so it's the one I focus on the most. It's, it's to me the, the best and clearest representation of hell found in, in, in the Bible from the words of Jesus. Gehenna was both a physical place and a spiritual place. But it's a physical place that gives a, a, us as humans a better idea of a place that we can't fathom. The Valley of Hinnom, or, or, or Gehenna as, as it was later, later called, was this valley where the Israelites, in their time where they were most idolatrous, they went and sacrificed their children by burning them. There was a demon god named Molech, and his requirement for fertility was to give the fruits of your fertility. So if you wanted to have a bountiful crop, if you wanted to have a lot of children, you would come, you would take your child, and you would literally burn them alive. Detestable, deplorable, awful, still done today, but this now it's done clinically. People sacrificing children for their own gain. Once Israel gets their act together, they realize, wow, this is bad. God never called us to do this, and nor does he applaud what we are doing. And so they turn it into a place, they basically turn it into a dump. We don't want to build a house here. We don't want to have a city here. It's going to be a dump. And we're just going to burn our refuse. Prisoners, bodies will be buried there. Animals that are just unclean will be burned there. All of our refuse and dung and garbage and all the deplorable things that we don't want in our city will be taken there to the Valley of Hinnom or to Gehenna. And because it's a trash pile, it burns continuously. If you, ever, if you ever get a chance, talk to Justin. Justin, when he served in Iraq, there was a garbage pile that they had to continuously burn. It was all of the refuse of, of these of these servicemen who were you know actively serving, and there's just big garbage. They have to burn it. And he tells me the what inspired this cross was a cross that he made in Iraq, where a big beam that just came flying out on fire as he was pushing it around with a bobcat. Um, this big beam came out that was on fire. He, he got the fire, put the fire out, and then made a cross out of it. Same idea. This place was so detestable, so wicked, and so evil. It was only good for the burning of the things that were gross and wicked and deplorable. It's that place that Jesus references to describe hell. That place, in and of itself, is not hell. That centralized place. Uh, on the earth is not hell. It's what Jesus uses as a reference point. If he were to tell us exactly what hell was like, our heads would explode. So he gives us a physical representation of what hell will be like. He says things like, the, the worm dieth not. The fire is unquenchable. Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea of these, these dogs hanging around these refuse piles because there still be scraps of things to scrounge for, that they would take the bones and the, the unburned flesh of, of animals and humans and, and, and scrounge for them. He uses this as the idea of what hell will be like, which means that hell is far worse than even what we are 
able to comprehend by this valley of Gehenna, by this valley of Hinnom. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Side note, we love children at South Bay Chapel because Jesus loves children. When 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 a, an adult causes a child to sin, that does not make Jesus happy. I mean, sin in and of itself doesn't make God happy. But Jesus said that if you cause a child to sin, it's better if you were to take a millstone. Now, when, when I lived in California, I didn't understand a millstone. But you go around here and you'll see people have them in their yards as decorations. Big, giant stones used to ground wheat and different kinds of, of grain. It says, tie one of those around your heck and neck and jump into the ocean. It would be better for you to suffer that way than to suffer at the hands of God for causing a child to sin. So right off the bat, we understand that as Jesus is about to make this reference, that sin is bad, we should avoid it, we should cry to him to get out of it. It's forgivable, but before the sin, we should do all that we can to stay out of it. Verse 43, he goes from children, goes back to the individual, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell, or Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, we don't have eye, hand, and foot Sunday where we ask you if you've sinned and what we need to lop off. Because Jesus is speaking not literally, but metaphorically or, or figuratively. He's not saying that we should literally cut off our hand. He's showing us the gravity of sin. The idea of that if, if you sin with your hand, maybe you've stolen or you've inflicted pain upon somebody, that it's not just that hand that's to blame. We know that. Sin begins in the heart of man and then extends through our hands and feet and eyes. But through our hands, feet, and eyes, Jesus has encapsulated the, the, the most of us, the, the most part of us, and said, look, if that's causing you to sin, it's better for you to, to discard that and go to heaven than to have that there as part of your testimony and then be cast into the lake of fire. Because, because Jesus won't just cut off your hand and say, well, the hand goes in. You're guilty. And so he uses this idea of hell, Gehenna, to describe the eternality of hell, the, the pain of hell, the fear, the, the, the separation. The idea of when, when the Bible talks about casting out, whether it's casting out demons or being cast into a lake of fire, the idea is being tossed from a good place to a bad place. From here to there, in the same way that a fisherman casts uh, his his lure out as far as he can, same thing. You'll be cast out. Now, wrap this all up. The good news of the gospel is that hell is escapable, and for the Christian, Romans eight and one says there is no condemnation for those who are who are in Christ Jesus. That the condemnation from sin that sentences us to hell has been paid by Jesus so that we don't have to suffer in hell. We no longer go around saying, hey, I'm going to die in hell one day. I'm going to be separate from God. You don't even today, you don't even have to go and say, you know what, I understand where I'm going a little better now. Now you can walk away and say, you know what, I've placed my faith in Jesus by confessing my sins, by by." Confessing that he is God, Lord and Savior, 
that I've placed my faith in him, and now I seek to be filled by him, to follow him, that he is my God and I am his child now. Hell is no longer for you. When we talk about the good news of the Bible, I'm not necessarily a fire and brimstone preacher that wants to scare you into heaven. Hell's so bad, don't go there. Oh, I don't want to go there. How do I get out? Well, you just say this simple prayer, and then Jesus has got to let you in the back door. No, what I want you to do is see Jesus and see what he has done for you, that he has taken this Gehenna hellfire for you so that you don't have to experience it, so that you can live life different than the rest of the world. We sing that song, Thrive. It talked about thriving, that we should thrive, not just merely survive. Nice rhyme. But it's true that that Jesus didn't just die so that we might barely squeak by, but that we might grow and blossom and flourish in him and become the men and women of God. To grow from being children of God to, to adults in God. And that might happen in a short period of time, and that might happen in all of our lifetime. doesn't matter. This is our endeavor, and this is what we choose because of what Jesus has done for us. When you see somebody sacrifice for you, unless you're cold-hearted, it, 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 it changes you. When someone will give of their pocket when you know that they work hard for every hour that they got paid for, you see the sacrifice and you realize that is great love. They have given to me, not out of their excess, not because they have extra, but because they love. When you see a mom or a dad pour out their lives for a child, you see great love. You see sacrificial love. And for the parents who, who, who sow that into their children, you see the children grow and have a great love for their parents. You see, them, you see children who eventually see the sacrifice of their mom and dad. And they understand the, the vast greatness of the love that these parents have for that child. Church, with Jesus, it's so much infinitely more what he has done for us and what he does for us daily. He has died for your sins, my sins, our sins, so that we might become the children of God, so that, so that we could literally have a way to get back to him. And that should cause a sense of guilt over our sin. Some people ask me, how do I not feel guilty about my sin? Well, there should be a healthy guilt. I mean, you should never walk away. I punched that guy in the face, but I feel okay about it. Like, no, you just punched that guy in the face. You should... You should not have done that. You should feel some guilt when you when you know that you've sinned. But the condemnation is gone. And you realize, wow, Jesus loves me so much. Simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. If your theology is grounded in that, you're going to be okay. You, you could have PhDs and Masters of Divinity and all kinds of certificates and diplomas, but if you don't understand that concept, you're lost. Children understand that concept. Jesus loves me. Why? The Bible tells me so. So today, in conclusion, I don't want you to waste your time. So Peter said in Second Peter chapter 3 that a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. But here's what he continues to say. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. God is not impatient. God does not tarry. God is not wasting time. God is not slow and, oh, I'll get to it tomorrow. Jesus is supposed to come back, but I'll do that tomorrow. Peter says, no, the Lord is patient. Think back to gospel accounts of Peter. Who was God most patient with? I mean, he had to be patient with all the disciples, but, but who seemed to always pop up? Peter. 
He denied the Lord three times after saying, oh, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you forever. I would die for you. And he denies Jesus three times. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he wants to build temples or tabernacles for, you know, for Jesus and, and Moses and the other guy and just doesn't get it. A- after Jesus' resurrection, you know, Peter, do you love me? Just keeps asking Peter. Peter's getting offended, but, but Jesus is being patient. Peter understood that patience, unlike a lot of people. So when Peter says that, that carries more weight than, you know, the guy who always gets everything he wants. Peter said, no, the Lord is, you know, the Lord is patient with me. And you don't understand patience like the Lord knows patience. The Lord is uh, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And when the heavens will pass away with a roar, uh, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will, will, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. <clears throat> Don't wait. Peter says when Jesus returns, it will be like a thief. If you see a thief coming, he's a bad thief. And you're going to lock your door and you're going to call the police. I'm not going to get anything, but a good thief. You never even knew they were there. Because that's how they are. And the scripture is not saying that Jesus is a thief, but he's saying in that same way where you cannot anticipate and you don't even really know that it's happening, that Jesus will appear just like that and the chance to repent and the chance to be reconciled and the chance to have the condemnation that hangs over your head to have it washed away by the great love of christ and his sacrifice will be gone and the only thing left that will await is hell that doesn't have to be you that doesn't have to be us give your life to jesus today let's stand Whether it's death or hell, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 15. He quotes the Old Testament. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you are victorious over all things, not because you're great, not because you're strong, not because the sermon was really great, not because you went to church, but because of Jesus. So let's pray together. We'll have a time of Q&A together, and then we'll go home. Bob, can you come play um, something pretty? Yeah. Let's close our eyes. Lord, Lord, we made it. We made it through this sermon about hell and death, probably two of our least favorite subjects. We much rather would have preached about you know, heaven and, and your son and blessings and how to have our prayers answered. But Lord, this was the question today. These were the questions. And so today, Lord, we we do want to have a better understanding of hell, a better understanding of death, but only in a way that glorifies you. That we don't become fixated on these things and, and, and needlessly bent towards them, but that we realize that we have been saved from them. That while we might die a physical death, it's not the end of the of the life that we have that we will spend eternal life with you and in your presence or eternal life in hell and so i just pray to say lord that your people would give their lives to you whether they've done it a thousand times or whether today's the first day that they would give their lives to you lord i'm a limited man holy spirit i'm praying that you would speak to your people in such a way that transcends the words that i even preached that you would go farther than the ears I can reach, but go to the heart of your people, that they might know Jesus, they might experience your love, that they might, like the word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us, Lord. And while we we know that the promise of Jesus' return is for any moment, Lord, we're praying that For those of us today who are struggling and and needing more and 
have more questions, Lord, that you would indeed, as Peter says, be patient with us. We do not want to perish. We do not want to be unrepentant. So we pray for your patience with us. And we thank you for your gracious patience that allows us to ask questions, to come to you as our chief pastor or our chief shepherd and ask these questions that maybe for you are quite simple. But for us, it's, it's so incredibly big. Jesus, I thank you that you're not a God who's far away, who, who is unreachable, but you're a God who hears and knows and experiences with us. Jesus, be that God for us today. In your name we pray. Amen.